Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady here with Lou Weiss, who's the founder of this podcast. And we're joined by David Braun from Capstone, the growth engineers. David's been on with us before. He talked about the manufacturers who don't have an exit plan. They want to sell their company, but they don't have any thought about how to do that. They don't have an heir to pass it off to. So they're sitting, staring at it, going, how do I keep this going after I'm out of it? And we're going to talk to David about, okay, who's going to buy it? Can we get the younger generation to buy in? David, thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Good to see both of you uh, today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Our pleasure. So David, pre-show, you surprised us. We heard something that neither Lou nor I expected. Lou and I both want to own our own business, mm. uh, like to own our own business, but the younger generation, not so much. You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, I have visited probably about a half a dozen manufacturing companies in the past three weeks, and um, one of the one of the trends that I saw again in these visits, but I've also noticed in particular over the past probably two years or thereabouts, is you know we we our generation our generations have you know traditionally liked the idea of kind of moving up and being able to become an owner or maybe starting your own business. Um, what we're seeing in many cases, and, I, and this is of course a bit of a generalization, but what we're seeing in many cases is a lot of the younger generation is not particularly interested in being uh, an owner of a company. Uh, as a matter of fact, what we've seen is in some cases, some owners of companies don't necessarily want to continue to be an owner of a company. They're okay with somebody buying them out and them going back to being an employee. So. It's a I, and I, there's a couple of reasons that we see it. Um, one is I think around compliance. Uh, another is around I think they've gotten a bit of a taste for what it's like to have to deal with employees and contracts and government requirements and safety regulations and OSHA. And I think for many of them, they're just not necessarily as inspired by the rewards for that. I think there's also an element where maybe they've seen our generations and the kinds of things that we've had to do from a work standpoint, you know, seven days a week or certainly six days a week often. And, you know, it's not a nine to five kind of job. And I think for many of them that hasn't, they haven't necessarily seen the appeal for that. They haven't necessarily, they've seen too much trade-off, I think, in doing that. So I, it, I, it's, a, it's a bit alarming for me, quite frankly, because I think you know, we certainly need that younger generation to to be interested and attracted uh, to being an owner of, of solid manufacturing companies. So are you saying that entrepreneurship is on the death knell? No, um, I don't say that. I think that the the other part of it, there's a difference. So an entrepreneur is someone who has an idea about maybe how to do things differently, like taking Elon Musk, for example, to use an and kind of an exaggerated example that everybody will be familiar with, but that's an entrepreneur who's created something, um, you know, that's solving a problem that maybe wasn't solved that way before. I'm talking more about transition. And these are not necessarily entrepreneurs. These are owners. These are people that can move up from being an employee to being an actual equity shareholder of a company. And I think there's a big difference. I think we still have a lot of young people 
who want to be entrepreneurs. They want to find ways to use technology or come up with different solutions for how to uh, solve problems, but they're not necessarily as interested in moving up in the traditional way within uh, a, a, just a regular like manufacturing company. Does that make sense, the difference? Yeah, I get that. I get that. That puts the manufacturers who are our age in a quandary because if they didn't have a plan to sell their business before, it just got worse because now yeah. they don't have somebody to sell it to. Yeah. Well, and that's right. And, you know, there's kind of five categories when we think about selling. Um, you can sell to a strategic, and that's that's the one that should have the most value in, in buying the business. They have the most synergy for buying the business. Um, two, I could sell to a financial entity like a private equity or a family office. Three, I could look at international. Um, and I separate that out because international could be a blend of either financial or strategic. But it's its own category because we have to really look hard at opportunities outside that are outside the U.S. that want to be inside the U.S., even as close as Canada. We see a number of Canadian companies that in particular as a result of COVID said, you know, we, we don't want to have the repeat of that. We want to make sure we've got manufacturing physical plant and capabilities in the U.S. Um, fourth is an ESOP, employee stock ownership plan. And fifth would be a management buyout. So those are kind of the categories. Now, I guess the sixth would be succession you know, just transferring to the next person, uh, you know, in the family that would be interested in, in taking over the business. Those are really kind of the buckets that you have to be thinking about in terms of transition of ownership. Is that uh, the tra generational transformation? Uh, I'm hearing a lot that there's not a lot of kids that look to take over Pop's business. Hmm. Yeah, I, 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 experiencing it's, that, we have we've got some clients that are fifth generation and more, and the conversations are around selling the company, which personally I find kind of disheartening. You know, you'd like to think that they would want to keep it on, but they don't have the same connection. You know, maybe they don't have the same interest, or maybe the tree has too many branches on it, so it gets a little top heavy in order for it to support the family. Um, so when I'm advising those owners, I always say, keep the tree pruned, you know, don't, don't, don't let too many family members continue to have a, you know, a, a, a spot at the trough without being participants in, in running the business. I, you know, the last major transfer of ownership was World War II going to baby boomers. Now we've got baby boomers transitioning to question mark. And a lot of their kids are not interested in taking over the business. They, they would rather the company be sold and they get cash and liquidity for the business. I can't tell you how many of those phone calls I get every month from owners that just, and, and owners have never done this before. You know, that's one of the hardest parts of this whole kind of conversation that we're having. So these owners have been running the business for 30 or 40 or more years. Now, what do they do and how do they, change that kind of mindset of somebody else is going to be owning their baby it's it's a very kind of an emotional but financial and strategic decision that they have to make that's very complicated and and frankly right now it's even more complicated because of the rising interest rate environment where valuations are, are coming down much like home sales um, they're coming down 
and buyers are you know a little bit more hesitant um, to to be making investments they're they're sitting on the sidelines a little bit at the moment David I read recently where there's somewhere north of 600,000 manufacturers across the U.S. Hmm. And I'm and I'm concerned hearing what you say that we could lose a number of those. And what people may not realize is that there are little parts that go into bigger parts that go into eventual parts. And if you lose the person who makes the little parts, you can't get the big parts made. That's right. <laughs> we found that out in COVID, didn't we, uh, Tim? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. You did. <laughs> yeah. You got one piece of the puzzle and you're missing it. You don't have the puzzle <laughs> figured out. Well, you know, I, I begin to think about the U.S. domestic supply chain. We've experienced the supply chain from overseas. Right. But now we have a new problem. The domestic supply chain may have some aging weaknesses. I think we do. And I think that, you know, one of the things I'm very passionate about is that we need manufacturing and we need for it to be strong. We need to encourage people to want to be in manufacturing. I think it's, I, I actually have said, I think it's a national defense issue. Um, you know, we need to make sure that we can manufacture um, things here in the U.S. You know, when you lose that ability, you you really lose, I think, your, your ability as a country to defend yourself, in my opinion. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, twisted a little bit because I think that there's a bit of opportunity here if we can figure this out. The opportunity is, is that the demand is there. And the demand is there, especially for um, small companies that have a vision and a tolerance for risk that want to continue to be in this world of manufacturing and want to continue to grow. I think there's a big opportunity to move to the middle. You know, how many you know, if you look at those 600,000 or so manufacturing companies, I think you would find it's probably disproportionate in the sense that it's a bit of an inverted bell curve. You know, there's a lot of big ones and there's a lot of small ones, but how many more do we have in the middle anymore? Pick a, pick a number or pick a size, 50 to 500 million. You know, how many do we really have that are in that size range? And I suspect you would find it, it's not as many as we, we need. Um, so I think there's an opportunity for these smaller companies, and again, however you want to define small, and it'll vary on industry within manufacturing, I think there's an opportunity to move to the middle. So if we can get these folks that are inspired and passionate about manufacturing, the, the demand is there. You know, people want you to do and do things for them and do more things for them. Um, and that usually comes in two forms, either geographic expansion, because they want you to be able to supply them in more locations, or it means capabilities and services. So you do this for me, I would be happy if you could take on these three projects for me and do more uh, of it, because we trust you, you're local, we want to continue to do business with you. So I, I think if we can figure out the transition, and we will, as I say, at some point, uh, uh, the parents are going to get involved mother nature and father time. I mean, it's going to happen. So we will have this happen. I would like for us to do it more orderly. I would like for us to be more, more proactive about thinking about that transfer and getting some younger, passionate people who really like manufacturing and, and are passionate about continuing it to be the new owners of these businesses. And I think for those, they're going to be great rewards. I feel very strongly that the marketplace will, will continue to support them and, and they will find opportunities for growth.
in some of the notes that I have uh, that when we've spoken to you in the past about manufacturing companies buying a company, uh, what what are the three or four things that they should be looking at uh, aside from the normal profitability and so on and so forth? What what is it they should be looking at in terms of that manufacturing company has done? or to continue doing in the future? Uh, you mean from a buyer's perspective? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. So, I, you know, I think there's a couple things. One, I mean, obviously you got to look at the traditional, you know, kind of assets in the from the balance sheet and you got to look at the P&Ls. But I think there's a couple other things that can be hidden within that that maybe aren't necessarily reflected, for example, on the P&Ls. Um, one is the longevity of the company. What have they done and what have they done well? Um, because for many of these companies, they have maybe transitioned to becoming lifestyle companies. So maybe the P&Ls don't accurately reflect the, the capabilities of that organization. So one of the things that we always look at is, is, you know, what do they do and what do they do well? What are their core capabilities? Why are people buying from them? What are the, what are the unique either products or services or capabilities that they have um, that other people don't? Second thing that we look at is the workforce. Um, how trained is that workforce? What kind of skills do they have? What kind of work ethic do they have? And I will tell you, some of this, you know, is a little bit ephemeral. We, I walk, I told you, I've been to six manufacturing plants in the past 30 days. Just walking around the plant can give you, especially for someone who's in the business, you can get a pretty good idea of kind of how things operate. You know, what's the sense of, of the kind of the morale or the energy within the organization. And you can get a sense for, you know, their you know, we like to call pride of place, you know, how clean and organized and, and well uh, maintained is the business, because you want to get a sense for what's the, what's the essence of that, uh, of that business. Um, and then the last thing that we look at are the customers. What kind of customers do they have? And how long have they had them? And what kinds of things are the customers um, doing? Because in many cases, what we have found is those customers, if asked, would gladly have a conversation about having more services with that company. Um, and there may be some things that they don't even know. Um, you know, as Henry Ford said, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. So <laughs> we, we see that as opportunity because in many cases, that's where things haven't necessarily been polished and, and glimmered because the, the focus has been on kind of maintaining what we do and we've always done it this way. And it's a lack of a better word, it's a lifestyle company. So those are some examples of things that we look at to give us a little bit more sense for what the value is within that company, not just the valuation, but what's the value and the potential um, for that business. And I, I will tell you what, from my experience, many of these organizations are hungry for a more active and proactive ownership. Many of the people in the business and their customers, and frankly, the suppliers, would be delighted to have an owner that is investing in them and is focused on growing those businesses. I, I think that they're, again, I'm very optimistic because I see it, we, we're not in a situation where there's lack of demand, where we're having to try to make things work. That's not the issue. We're not trying to rent more commercial real estate. You know, which is an abundance of that's not that's not where we are right now. We we have a different problem. Our problem is that the demand is strong. We don't have enough skilled labor. 
and we've got an issue with transition of ownership. David, when you say a lifestyle company, interesting term. I don't know that I understand what it means. So what we see with lifestyle companies is the owners um, are, are not particularly interested in continuing to invest a lot of resources. They want, they're using the business as a way to support what they do outside of the business, their lifestyle. So for them, you know, there's not a high motivation to grow the business. There's not a high motivation to spend a lot of money on CapEx um, for investing or expanding. It, I've seen this plenty of times where the owner has opportunities for growth. Nah, not, not really. Don't know I want to take on that risk. Why would I want to open up another plan? I got, I'm making enough money. Um, so that's because they're at a different point in their life. You know, for a lot of these owners, what we're seeing is they're they're in their mid to late 60s, you know, 67, 68. Um, and why would I want to what maybe even higher? <laughs> <laughs> why why would I want to take on that kind of risk at that point in my life? You know, there's just not the motivation. I, I've actually had owners tell me this. They said, what we're gonna do is we're gonna continue to do what we can to generate cash flow out of this company with investing as little as we can in it. And basically what they're doing is what we call in our business, an orderly wind down. They <laughs> just continue to take out without investing back. And they're okay with that. They see that as a declining asset that they're going to wind down and then sell the real estate. I've had many owners that have told me that. I've heard this story uh, as you just uh, stated it. But there's also, there are companies uh, that I've spoken to that are business owners who are in their 60s, 70s and higher, higher uh, that they are looking at their employee base who've been with them for a long time and who have been loyal to them for a long time and that they want to protect the company and the legacy of the company for the employees that have given the owner this lifestyle legacy that you talked about. So there are uh, there are those who are looking to protect the company for the employees. Absolutely. Yeah. You and for those, yeah, and for those, um, I think they have a very unique responsibility to make sure that they are providing a proper home for the company in the future. The owners of the business, not the CEO or the president, if they're not the owner, only the owners have the ability and responsibility to make sure that they're looking out for what happens next to that company, because they're the only ones that can make that decision. And that's an awesome responsibility that they have. And I feel like many of them feel very altruistic about their employees and their customers. You know, that's been a, that's been a lot of the fabric of their life you know, have been working with these people. What's I think hard for many of them is, is that they've never sold their company before. So it's a hard thing to do. Um, it's not something that they're good at. They're good at knowing how to do what they do, but this is not something that they're good at. And so getting a little bit more educated about it, getting a little bit more comfortable with what that may look like, getting the right people to help advise you, to walk you through this process, I think it's important and, and being proactive. One of the worst things I tell owners, and this is going to sound horrible when you hear me say it, but one of the, one of the things I tell owners is the worst thing they can do is get disabled. 
if you die, we know how to handle things. Um, but if you get disabled and now we got a whole kind of limbo situation and you, you know, you have a, you have a business that needs to continue to operate and we can't necessarily make good decisions about moving forward. That's where it's really tough. So I strongly urge owners to be thinking about that transition and being prepared for it in a proactive way, uh, as opposed to waiting for mother nature and father time to call on them and, and make that decision for them. I know that sounds bad, but that's a little bit of kind of kind of harsh reality about what that's I see. realistic. <laughs> this is why we have manufacturing talk radio and guests on such as you who present these types of ideas and and thoughts and uh, uh, concepts for the owner, the manufacturing owner who doesn't know about this. Who mm -hmm. oh my God, am I going to fall on the shop floor? And break both my legs then what am i going to do yeah. nobody thinks like that i don't think like that right but you're right it could happen it does happen yeah i'm sure it does and let me just add one other thing to that lou because and sorry to interrupt him but but one of we talked earlier about young people and one of the things that i really like to encourage owners to to think about is how do we find young hands to help make this happen you know because in many cases i'll just give you kind of one one example of this in many cases you may have young people who are interested in it but they also don't know how to do it they've never done this before and they may not have the financial resources but if we can train them and guide them and mentor them and finance them we can also provide a very selective way to provide some of this transition to younger people who are passionate uh, about the business. So we can, we can set them up for success and also help to support that financially. David, we have gone through the last supply chain disruption, which caused companies to proactively move towards reshoring. So mm -hmm. now we're either reshoring or nearshoring. We're bringing jobs back to the domestic country. Uh, but now we have a new problem. Is reshoring likely to exacerbate this or can we absorb it? I think probably a little bit of both. Um, I do. I think that uh, it, I think right now the challenge that I see is many companies just don't have enough skilled labor. Um, so they have the, again, they, if they could add 50% more to their workforce of skilled labor, not just bodies, but skilled labor, um, uh, they could probably put them to work. The issue is that they're struggling. And, and, and on top of that, for many of them, they have an aging work population. So their current population is moving up in their age. And so they need to replenish those and add more. So one of the things that we're spending a lot of time talking about is how do we make it more attractive for younger people to want to go into the manufacturing world? You know, not everybody's not everybody's wired to go to college and become a computer programmer, but that seems to be a lot of the pressure. And one of the things that we want to make sure that we're working with companies, but also, you know, uh, governments, you know, local and state in particular governments is creating programs and apprenticeship programs through high schools, for example. And we've, we've been seeing a lot of this and it's, and it's getting some traction, but finding a way to expose younger people to what this is like. And for, 
for many of them, this is a an opportunity that's really exciting for them. I, I had one guy talk to me at, at business school. Uh, I went back and spoke to my business school. Now, this is a college, was soon to be a college graduate, but he was being recruited to go to work for a manufacturing uh, company. And he said, um, kind of wanted to pull me aside and he didn't really want other people hearing our conversation. And he said, you know, I'm, everybody's so focused on going to work for venture capital or private equity or some kind of financial Wall Street. He goes, but I just really like the idea of working for this company. They happen to have been in the locomotive business, railroad business. And I said, man, we need you. Please go take these jobs. We need people like you to continue to go work in there. But there was almost a little bit of peer pressure. Like, why would you want to go work for a for a company that makes things like that? Why aren't you going to, why aren't you aspiring to go to Wall Street? And we got to change that conversation, in my opinion. And for example, one of the things that I, I have done in the past, one of my daughters was studying abroad in, in Singapore for her business school class. For She was there for a summer, for a semester. And one of the things that I did is I actually had them, the whole class, go to meet with one of my clients over there that has a manufacturing facility, make things in Singapore. Because I said to the business school dean, I said, they need to not just go to you know, financial institutions, they need to go see how things are made. And I think it was a, you know, it wasn't like one visit's going to change things, but it was just a little bit of a mindset of how do we get people more exposed to this? And I think for many people, including, by the way, women, women have not traditionally been kind of invited into the manufacturing world in a big way. Um, and I think for many, both young men and women, it's an opportunity that once they're exposed to it, for many of them, they find it appealing. It's got a lot of things that that they like uh, about it, and we need to continue to encourage it. And I think, frankly, um, your talk radio is is a great outlet for giving people ideas about how to think about doing this and and provide more opportunities to attract uh, younger people to the to the trades. Well, thank you for that. Uh, but you just also gave me the opportunity to bring up one of my pet topics, and that is. This country needs to have an immigration policy that will help us in our manufacturing sector. Mm -hmm. And we don't. We, we treat immigrants as drug dealers and rapists and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, there's a million people in Ukraine that can come over that have been running machines their whole lives. Yeah. Bring them over, let's or, or have them start um, uh, apprenticeship programs and training programs and so on. And so, as you were talking about reshoring, so we bring the, the jobs back, but we don't have the people. So maybe right. we need to bring the people along with the jobs. Yeah, you know, bring, you bring up a good point, and I, I will, I will. Being in Washington D.C., I'm going to sidestep right around the political part of your comment, though. But, <laughs> well, we need that a lot. <laughs> but here's the other, here's the other opportunity slash. If we don't do something, I think you're going to see some of this onshoring or nearshoring going back, because it's going to go back to where the labor is. So I think we've got a perishable opportunity here. But if we cannot figure out how to do this, other countries will. And the businesses that need this can't wait. So this is, I think, something that's critically important for us to help figure out. And part of it is, it's not just one thing, it's the combination of things. But it starts, in my opinion, with getting younger people 
into the organizations, but also having younger people own companies in the business and being more attuned to the way businesses are being run these days. David, you, you bring up a powerful point about the young people and the new and shiny. You know, I want to go work for venture capital. I yeah. want to go uh, be the next great gamer. Uh, and the reality is that all of the really exciting things that we live through in our daily lives, the new innovations are coming out of manufacturing. Yeah, the next game is cool, but the next piece of new technology that makes a difference in uh, how that computer runs, how fast it runs, coming out of manufacturing. Right. And so it's not necessarily the new and shiny venture. It can be the existing that if you look in their R&D, there's some fascinating things going on. That's right. And not only that, but look at how manufacturing is so different today, you know, in the sense of automation and technology. So again, when I, when I walk some of these plant floors and you see the amount of, in effect, gaming that's happening right there, I mean, it's not a game that you're playing, but it's got a lot of cool stuff that's going on in terms of how you're running these these uh, pieces of equipment and doing really interesting things, you know, it's, it's not your grandfather's manufacturing plant anymore by any means. It's got a tremendous amount of sophistication and it's got a long way to go still yet. And that's where they can play a role in that. But yeah, to your point, you know, even the things that we talk about, like the technology we're using right here, there are a lot of things that were manufactured that allow us to do what we're doing now virtually. Yes. And I think one of the uh, very fascinating trade shows that's coming up is Fabtech. Mm -hmm. Lou and I have been at Fabtech. Uh, the kinds of equipment that you get to experience when you're there, they they put me in a, a asbestos coat of some kind, probably wasn't asbestos, <laughs> handed me a torch that was five times hotter than the surface of the sun and allowed me to cut a piece of metal. Uh, it, it's fascinating how they, for instance, tear apart an old cruise ship with just that kind of equipment. Mm -hmm. Lou and I have put on goggles and walked through machines. That was, being that built. was the best. <laughs> we walked into a machine with goggles and we're walking in this machine to find what was broken. Huh. And it was astonishing. So who found what was broken first? <laughs> I don't know if we found it. I think I was so amazed about the fact that we're in that machine. And, you know, it's like, uh, what was that movie? Uh, Dad Shrunk the Kids or something? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so. we've had an opportunity to have on the show some folks from uh, Groton Boat, mm -hmm. you know, build submarines and battleships. and. Right. They now use this. I mean, you used to go, they told us they used to go into a battleship because it was too heavy. The first question I asked is, how do you know a battleship is too heavy? And of course they said, well, Archimedes' law of water displacement. I went, oh, yeah, there sure, okay. <laughs> Completely understand that. Uh, it sits too low in the water. Uh, and they walked through it with a rolling cart and six feet deep of blueprints. Hmm. 
And you went into a room and you flipped through that room's blueprint to find out when they built the battleship, what stuff got left in that was temporary structure that should have come out. So it took them 39 weeks to do that. Wow. Now it's on an iPad and you hold up the iPad and you scan the room. And if it's purple, that has to come out. It takes them three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> but that's all that stuff, all that cool. stuff, all those chips and that technology and the sensors and the all the things that go into that, somebody has to manufacture that. That's exactly right. Absolutely, absolutely. That's the part. It doesn't just. It's not like this. The 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 technology and chip fairies come out and sprinkle the dust around and and happens and <laughs> and that's that's all part of it. And I think I think people overlook that. You know, all those things have to be made. Look at how many pieces of the of the Apple iPhone are made in China. Yes, yes. And that does become a national security issue. Uh, some real concerns. I mean, look at the gears behind us, the, the intricacy, the the polish, because that surface is finished down to a real fine, smooth finish during manufacturing. It goes into something right. where those gears become active. And if you look at everything that's going up in the energy sector, there are gears in every one of the turbines that's in every one of those things. Right. That's yeah, all manufacturing. Those windmills have gears in them. <laughs> Again, I don't know that everybody fully appreciates that, but when we get the young people to go see that, ah, the light bulbs go off, right? So we've got to, we've got to figure out how to do more of those field trips, mentorships, things like that, that people can see. Even just your example about walking in the, uh, you know, inside the the organization with your trying to find the the you know where the where the manufacturing defects are. I mean, how, it, it inspired you, and you've been in the business. Oh yeah, it's fascinating to watch. And you talk about the young kids finding a different way of doing things. They're in tune with this technology. They've lived, grown up on their iPhone, so using that device to think about okay, this is the way we do this process but if we did this and that we can improve the process improve the outcome there is where manufacturing has another exciting role absolutely so one of the things manufacturing talk radio is about is bringing the story about how cool manufacturing is to that younger set lou well i uh, david it's been a, a, a real pleasure having you here uh great stories i'd like to have you back some more and talk about more things uh as they evolve in your end of the world and uh tim yes and oh by the way grotenborn it was newport news shipbuilding it was right. newport news shipbuilding that we were we were talking to and yeah, great right. guys uh i asked a couple of questions where they said well can't answer that that's national security yeah <laughs> david Yes, that's right. Uh, David, always appreciate you having uh, joining pleasure. us. We'd love to have you back again. Uh, you've got a lot of wealth of knowledge and what's happening in manufacturing. And this transition is so critical. We've got to talk to you more about it. My pleasure. And if any of your listeners have any questions, they're, they're more than welcome to reach out and I'll do my best to help them. Give us your email. So we should have done that earlier. But oh, sure. Yeah. So you can go to capstone, www.capstonestrategic.com, www.capstonestrategic.com.
Great. Excellent. Uh, again, thank you. And uh, uh, for all of you who are listening, if you have comments or, or questions, let us know. If you like the show, hit the like button. If you uh, want to subscribe to our show, there's another button. Anywhere you look, there are buttons. Use them. <laughs> Good to Thanks see you again, all. Lou. And thanks, everyone, for joining us on this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, please like and subscribe, share on social media, or leave a review. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Rumble, or your favorite podcast app. Visit us online at mfgtalkradio.com for our other episodes. We have also included links to our advertisers below. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.